passage of scripture is taken from Philippians chapter one, verses three through six. Paul writes to his brothers and sisters in the church of Philippi the following words. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I have always prayed with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God, and may it instill within us a greater understanding of our partnership in the gospel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Well, today is a great week, or great weekend for sports. Uh, Certainly the Super Bowl is today, but also over the course of this last week, and despite the political tension of the games being played in China, the Winter Olympics are taking place. And I don't know if you've been following along great stories that have come, athletes overcoming adversity, working toward their ultimate goal of earning some kind of medal. As I've been watching the results that have kind of rolled in, I was reminiscing this week on yesteryear and some of the great stories that have come out of the Winter Olympics. Did you know that it has been 42 years since the miracle on ice? 42 years. Now, I was very young, 42 years ago, Um, actually I was six years old and I did, I I recall that. I remember the experience of the miracle on ice. It was such a cultural phenomenon. Uh, For those that don't know, the miracle on ice was an ice hockey game that occurred between the underdog U.S. hockey team and the heavily favored Soviet team. Soviet team was a four-time defending gold medalist. They were heavily favored, and the U.S. team was not even supposed to place in these games. In fact, just prior to the games, they had an exhibition game, and the Soviet team beat the U.S. team 10 to 3. They were devastated. But then something amazing happened as the game started. The U.S. played their first game. They tied with Sweden And as each game unfolded, they ended up winning until they finally got to the medal round against the Soviet Union. Over the course of the games, the U.S. started to play a little bit better. Their confidence grew. They started to to grow cohesively as a team. And a lot of the credit for this is directed toward the U.S. coach for that team, a man by the name of Herb Brooks. By the way, if you've ever seen the Disney version of this story in the 2004 film, this this part, Herb Brooks, was played by Kurt Russell. He is remembered by members of the team as being gruff and ornery, but he was also remembered as a brilliant strategist. In his speech that occurred just before the game against the Soviet Union, it was recorded that he said to his team the following words. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. 
He concluded his remarks with this, this is your time, so go out there and take it. And despite the great obstacles, great odds, even losing by one in the final period, the United States team fought back and ultimately they scored two goals and held the Soviet team to nothing. The U.S. won that game four to three. It was the miracle on ice. Most people don't know that that was, that was not the gold medal game. Actually, that got the U.S. to the gold medal game in which they won their match or their game against Finland. It's one of those moments that is burned into the collective conscience of, America's, of Americans because in that time, there were all kinds of things going on in this country. Inflation, gas prices, political division was running rampant. Sounds a little bit familiar, does it not? Yeah. Uh, this victory over the Soviet Union gave Americans a sense of unity and a sense of hope for the future. It was one of those just great stories of victory, overcoming great odds and a team coming together for a common purpose and ultimately accomplishing that purpose. We love stories like that, do we not? I love stories like that. I love stories of teams or groups or communities of people who come together overcoming great odds and accomplishing great things. Sports are filled with stories like this. History is filled with stories like this. Literature is filled with stories like this. By the way, have I ever told you about my affinity for The Lord of the Rings? Have we talked about that before? Have we ever had that conversation before? One of my favorite stories, I love the movies. Uh, the Lord of the Rings is the story of a group of diverse individuals who come together for a common purpose. Hobbits, men, an elf, a dwarf, and a wizard bound together by that common purpose. And ultimately, they go off in different directions, but they're still bound together for that common purpose. The first book in the series is called The Fellowship of the Ring. And fellowship is one of those words based on our common understanding and experience of the word that doesn't quite capture the essence of their relationship as they endure through the trials and tribulations of the adventure that they go on. Fellowship doesn't quite capture the essence of what teammates go through, the blood, the sweat, and the tears as they work their way toward a championship or a gold medal. Over the course of this series, we've explored why the church matters. And certainly fellowship is a word that has become synonymous with our understanding of the church. But here's the thing, fellowship is a word that has become a little bit domesticated in the life of the church. Because when we think of fellowship, we think of coffee hour in between services, right? We have a fellowship hall that is over here and oftentimes we experience idle chit-chat. And I don't mean to denigrate that at all. I love the experience of meeting with people in the fellowship hall. But the word that's used in the passage of scripture today is koinonia. And in multiple places in the scriptures, in the New Testament, it is translated as fellowship. But here in the book of Philippians, a new word is used. And that word is partnership, partnership. In Paul's understanding of what koinonia is, as he's writing to the church in Philippi, it has a meaning that is, that is deeper, that is wider, that is fuller. 
than idle chit-chat. I love the book of Philippians. It's one of my favorite letters that Paul has. I think it's the epitome of spiritual maturity. Paul, if you didn't know, is under house arrest in Rome. It's about 62 AD. It's during his first imprisonment. And Paul doesn't know what his future is going to entail. He doesn't know if he's gonna be set free. He doesn't know if he's going to remain in prison. He's in chains. He doesn't know if he's gonna live. He doesn't know if he's gonna die. And yet his concern is not for himself, It's not for his present circumstance, but rather his concern and his appreciation is directed toward his brothers and sisters in the church in Philippi. He loves them and he appreciates them. And because of the relationship that he has with them, 16 times in this four chapter book, he uses a variation of the word joy, joy. We heard that word expressed in the passage that I've already read, but the culmination of that, of course, will be in Philippians chapter four, in which Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Again, his his concern is not for himself. His concern is for others. And I love how Paul begins this passage of scripture. In true Pauline fashion, he offers a word of thanks to God for the Philippian church. It starts off in verses three and four in which he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. And then he goes on to say, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with what? Joy, that's right. Two weeks ago, Dr. Thorpe talked about the church in terms of being the covenantal family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think this is a concept that Paul is fully on board with. Because despite the great distance that exists between Paul as he's under house arrest in Rome and all the way in Macedonia and Philippi, he feels an intimate connection with the Philippians. They are connected to one another as the family of faith, as the covenantal community. And he understands that they are bonded under the lordship of Jesus through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So he says to them, I thank God for you. And I have joy because of you. And then it'll go on to say in verse five up on the screen, because of your koinonia, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Again, koinonia is often translated as fellowship. Here, it's translated as partnership. Some translations say participation. Some translations say sharing. All of those feels a little bit inadequate in terms of what Paul is getting at here. Koinonia is defined as an association involving close mutual relations and involvement. Two parts to that. Close mutual relations and involvement. So first, koinonia entails a relational partnership. We speak about it here at First Pres in terms of one of our strategic priorities. Our second strategic priority is we are cultivating relationships of radical affection and accountability. Session members know this. We've talked about this. Uh, Dr. Swanson's talked about this before. But the reason why this is articulated as a strategic priority for our congregation is because we know its value, the importance of being in relationship with one another. When we think about the experience of discipleship, we think about the, uh, the experience of formation, that happens through the vehicle of relationships. 
And so God is calling us into greater intimacy with him, but also with one another as well. So when we think about koinonia, we are thinking about the relational partnerships that we have with one another. But it's not a partnership simply for the sake of relationships. It's a partnership that is rooted in God's purpose and mission. And Paul will actually talk about it in terms of being a partnership in the gospel. So what does it mean to be partners in the gospel? That's what we're focused on today. What does it mean for me to be a partner in the good news? Well, it begins with an understanding about the scriptures, about God's story. As Reformed evangelical Christians, we believe a few things about scripture. We believe that it has authority over our lives. We believe that scripture is the living word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 will teach us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the person of God is equipped for good work. So we believe that scripture has authority over our lives, and we also believe that scripture shapes us and molds us and facilitates an intimacy with God. But the other thing that we know about scripture is that in scripture, this biblical narrative, God's activity throughout history is being communicated to us. It's a story that's still unfolding. You remember a couple of weeks ago when Dr. Swanson brought the dry erase board up here and he drew that ark and talked about the four chapter gospel of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Remember that? Well, not to disparage Dr. Swanson's artistic ability, but we actually have a prettier depiction that we're gonna share with you today. Our creative team put this together and it is wonderful. We actually have copies of this, right, Case? We've got some cards that can be made available to you if you want your own copy. But there's the story, creation, fall, redemption, moving toward final restoration. That final restoration of Revelation 21 and 22. And one of the things that Dr. Swanson communicated to us is that we are part of this story. We haven't reached the culmination of the story. We haven't reached the renewal of all things. And so Paul understands this. Paul understands that despite his present circumstance, what he's having to endure through is connected to this larger narrative. And so because he can see the final restoration, he has joy. He offers thanksgiving to God. You know, he knows that well, he doesn't know if he's gonna live or die here, but he knows where this whole thing is headed. So he will say to his brothers and sisters in Philippi in verse six, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will carry it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. Why does he say this? Again, he knows where this story is headed. He, know he's, he knows he's part of God's activity in this world, and he is a partner with God as God's plan of redemption moving toward restoration unfolds. Paul understands that he and the Philippians are in partnership with one another, that they have this intimate connection with one another. But again, it's rooted in God's story. It's rooted in God's purpose. It's rooted 
in God's mission and it's rooted in God's gospel. So we are partners in the same way that Paul and the Philippians are partners. The way this kind of looks in terms of the life of the church, we talk about it in terms of outreach and evangelism. That's what it means to be a partner with God in God's story. Certainly in Philippians, there's a financial component to this because Paul offers thanks specifically to the Philippian church because they have been financially supporting him. If you know Philippians, he will single them out because there are times in which other churches failed to support Paul in his missionary journeys. But the Philippian church, they have been faithful to him. So he's thankful for that. But in addition to that, he is thankful because he knows about the ministry and the mission that's going on in Philippi, in Macedonia. He knows that the gospel is being enacted. He knows that the kingdom of God is breaking out. And so he offers thanks. Here's something else I wanna show you. We're gonna zoom in on that biblical narrative depiction and we see, remember Dr. Swanson put a little X on the line and he said, and this is where we are in the story. Well, we have a role in that story. We are missional disciples of Jesus. Let me say that again. We are missional disciples of Jesus. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means that we are sent into the culture to join in the work of God's kingdom, sharing the good news through loving relationships. Or to put it succinctly, we are sent to join, share, and love. Would you indulge me by saying that together? just so I know that you've got that this morning. We are sent to join, share, and love. One more time, we are sent to join, share, and love. And again, the fuller description of that is we are sent into the culture to join in the work of God's kingdom. We just prayed that actually a second ago, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We share the good news, but we do this all through the vehicle of loving relationships. So in the limited time that we have to kind of finish today, I'm going to unpack that for you. So you have a better understanding of your role in the biblical narrative. Missional disciple of Jesus is sent to join, share, and love. So we start with this understanding of being sent. John 20, 21, one of those foundational verses of scripture up on the screen, Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection, and he says to the disciples, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The scripture will go on to say that the Holy Spirit came upon them in that moment. But in this verse of scripture, John 20, 21, we see that the very nature of God is one of sending. God reveals that he is a sending God. God the Father sends the Son. God the Father and the Son send the Spirit, and then God the Father, Son, and Spirit send disciples out into the world. And that's not unique to this particular passage of Scripture. In fact, what I want to show you today is that all throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, God is revealed to be a sending God. Sending is the foundational biblical theme that describes the nature of of God's action in history. So going back all the way to the beginning, God sends an army to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God sends Joseph as a remnant to preserve a remnant on earth. God will send Moses to Pharaoh. God will send Moses to the sons of Israel. 
God will send Gideon to deliver Israel out of the hands of Midian. And then in terms of the prophets, God sends Isaiah, God sends Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. God will send Nathan to David. And again, what we see here in John 20, 21 is that God the Father and the Holy Spirit send the disciples. You ever notice that the disciples are called disciples to a certain extent, and then all of a sudden it switches and it says they're apostles. You ever thought about that switch over? What in the world's going on there? Well, apostle is simply a word that means those who are sent. So the point we need to kind of understand this morning is you can't be a disciple without being sent. And you can't be sent without understanding that you are a disciple. These two things work hand in hand with each other. Again, we are sent into the world. Sending is the foundational biblical theme in which God acts in this world. That's God's plan for redemption. He sends. And you and I are sent each and every day. You know, as we talk about our strategic priorities, we've talked about the missional venues of family, vocation, and neighborhood. We focused on these because we believe this is where God is sending us as a body of believers. So when you walk out of this place, when you re-enter your everyday rhythms of life, when you have relationships outside of the church, when you have uh, places that you have to go, every one of those is a place to which you are sent. Okay? Second part is this, we join in the work of God's kingdom. Um, I love this as a trivia question. I like to ask this all the time. What's the number one topic on which Jesus taught? Anybody know the answer to that? Did somebody say something? The number one topic on which Jesus taught is the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Seven parables dedicated to the topic of the kingdom of God. And yet we don't know how to talk about it in the everyday rhythms of the church, right? Uh, you and I would be hard pressed to come up with a succinct definition of the kingdom of God, right? If I were to ask you, how do you describe the kingdom of God? You would go, right? I mean, it's, it's a tough thing to define. And even Jesus in the parables will often say, well, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like this and that. There's not a succinct definition of the kingdom. And yet, as we just prayed, this is part of what we are called to do. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does it mean to join in the work of God's kingdom? Well, it, it means that we are participants in this larger biblical narrative. Redemption moving toward restoration is intimately connected to this concept of the kingdom breaking into the world. Jesus comes as the king and he ushers in the kingdom. In fact, he will say that in Mark's gospel, chapter one, he will say the kingdom has come near and yet the kingdom is not yet fully realized. It's this weird dynamic of, we see glimpses of the kingdom in our everyday rhythms of life, but we know it's not gonna be fully realized until we reach that final restoration, Revelation 20 and 21. So the kingdom is both present, Luke's gospel chapter 17, for those that like scriptural references, but it's also in the future, Revelation 20, 21, 22. 
It entails a spiritual reality in terms of Colossians 1, 9 through 14, but it also impacts the physical reality, Matthew 6, 10. And so as one joins in the work of the kingdom, this kingdom increasingly shapes who we are and what we do in the world. Our lights, our lives are aligned in accordance to the value of the economy of God's kingdom. Third one, we share the good news. We share the good news, right? We have a story to tell and that's kind of a complicated thing for uh, Presbyterians as well, right? Because we don't, we're not real good at evangelism. Maybe some of us are. Uh, Jim Singleton, who is our guest uh, teacher at the marriage retreat right now, got his PhD in the history of evangelism in this country. And one of the things that he will tell you is that the average Presbyterian will share their faith with someone outside of the faith once every seven years. Once every seven years, you got to be careful. This might be your year, right? I mean, this, this might be your year. Part of the reason that we don't do it is because we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to tell the story. One of the things that we discover in the biblical narrative, amen, is that uh, God's story, intersects with our story. Again, that was the depiction that David shared with us a few, year, uh, a few weeks ago. Our story becomes God's story. Our story becomes intertwined in this narrative of redemption moving toward restoration. And as that story intersects more and more fully into our lives, well, then our story becomes God's story. And so we, we learn how to tell the story. We have a story to tell. And it centers on Jesus. Jesus is plan A in this biblical journey of redemption moving toward restoration. Tim Keller will say, through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us. But not only that, rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him and then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together forever with him. Again, the story that we are called to tell is the story of redemption moving toward restoration, and it is the story of Jesus. And then last, certainly not least, we do this through the vehicle of loving relationships. One of my favorite verses of scripture is when Jesus is tested by the Pharisees and an expert in the law comes to him in Matthew 22, and the question is asked of Jesus, teacher, which is the greatest commandment up on the screen? Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied with love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He'll go on to say, hang all the laws and prophets on these two commands. They're intimately connected to one another. They are not mutually exclusive. You cannot love God without loving your neighbor. In fact, what I like to say often is that one of the best expressions of our love of God is through the love of our neighbors. One of my mentors used to say to his congregation that he served, Christianity happens at the speed of relationships. And the, and the vehicle that we drive is that of love. First Corinthians, Paul will say that if we don't get that point, we are a noisy instrument. 
Without love, we are nothing. Without love, we can do nothing. And without love, we can attain nothing. So there it is. There it is. Simple, right? Easy peasy. As we think about our role in God's story, we are sent to join, share, and love. We are sent into the culture to join in the work of God's kingdom, embodying that kingdom here on earth. We share the good news. We tell the story of Jesus and we do it through loving relationships. I'm gonna close with this. As we think about the places where God is sending us, some people have incredible platforms in which they are able to be a participant or a partner in the sharing of the gospel. How many of you are gonna watch the Super Bowl today? Raise your hand. Anybody? Yeah, okay. How many of you are rooting for the Bengals? Uh, okay, got one right there. All right, we got more out here. How many of you are rooting for the Rams? Okay, how many of you don't care? Okay, yeah, okay. So I wanna talk to you for a second. If you don't have a team to root for tonight, might I suggest the Rams? For the simple reason of Cooper Cup. Cooper Cup. So here's my connection. When I was at First Presbyterian Church of Yakima, Washington, Cooper's grandparents were members of my congregation. Uh, Jake Cup served on the session of that church when I was there, and Carla Cup serves on the session today and is helping them go through a pastoral transition, even in this moment. Jake and Carla have a son, uh, Craig Cup, who is married to Karen, and they have a son who is Cooper Cup. Cooper, when he graduated from Davis High School in Yakima, was not recruited by the big schools. He was on no one's radar, but ultimately went to Eastern and ended up setting all kinds of records. Ultimately, he was drafted by the Rams, and over his NFL career, he has slowly uh, but consistently gotten better and better and better. And this year, he won the triple crown in terms of receiving. So he's a wide receiver, number 10, most yards, most catches, most touchdown catches, receptions this year. Cooper is an amazing individual. He... Um, he comes from a family that has kind of this long history in the NFL. Jake Cup, who I know, played for the Cowboys and the New Orleans Saints. Craig Cup played for the Cardinals and the Cowboys. In fact, Craig was the backup quarterback to Troy Aikman in those glory years. And so Cooper is carrying on in the family business. Not football. Not football. Certainly the NFL has been a part of their collective journey, but he's carrying on in the family business in terms of that family being rooted in the gospel. And I can attest to that fact. They are an amazing family. Everything that they do, they share the gospel. They are partners in the gospel. Uh, when Cooper was in college, he married his high school sweetheart, Anna. And recently, as they won the NF NFC championship game, she had an opportunity to kind of talk about what this meant for their family. And she said, we have prayed for a season to glorify our Savior, Jesus Christ, and this is it. Isn't that amazing? 
In fact, as Cooper has been uh, interviewed this week, he's talked about how certainly they want to win the game, but that comes second to what his ultimate purpose is in this world. And over the course of this last week, he was asked the question, what has God taught you over the course of this season? And he said the following. He said, I think the thing that has taught me, that God has taught me, is that you will find that you are most fulfilled, you will find the most joy, there's that word again, when you are rooted in your purpose, and specifically in the purpose that God has for you. That, to me, has been one of the best things about this year. So I'm going to ask you again. Who might you be rooting for? (laughs) Just kidding. I think more than anything, Cooper, Anna, their entire family, they want God to be glorified. So where is God sending you this week? Because we all can't be sent to the Super Bowl. Think about your family. Think about your neighborhood. Think about your vocation. Where is God sending you? Are you called to join in the work of the kingdom? Are you called to tell a story? Are you called to do it through the vehicle of loving relationships? I think we all are. And for that, I echo the sentiment that's expressed by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians. I thank God and I have joy because of our partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you so much for the gift of today and for the opportunity for us to have this clear understanding of where this story is headed. Lord, I thank you that you continuously remind us that you have a plan and a purpose for our lives. And I pray that today, that all of us collectively would have a a greater understanding of the purpose that you have for each of us. Help us to embrace this idea of sentness as we think about relationships, as we think about the places that we will go this week, as we think about the experiences and the events. Lord, help us to be faithful to the calling that you have placed on us. Help us to embrace our identities as missional disciples of Jesus. For it's in his precious name that we all pray this day and all God's people said,